Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Whether you're in the auditorium or watching online, I, I always love to be here, but partly because when Darren asks you to preach, he gives you a specific text and a topic, and you know exactly where you need to go. So I said, well, what am I supposed to preach on? He said, love. And I said, well, what's my text? Anything you want. That's not the specificity I was expecting. So I thought all about it, and I thought, what am I going to preach on? I, I, I realize we're looking at this economy thing and uh, at God's economics, and he preached on glory, and I need to preach on love, and I know service is coming up. So I picked a really obscure text because, well, we hear sermons about love all the time. So this is a text I picked. <laughs> Anybody ever heard of that text? Actually, I'm fibbing. Because it's the most quoted text in the Bible. There's the greatest likelihood that you can say this by heart or kind of sort of say it over any other text we have. So I thought, let's just see how good you really are. Let's see if we can say it by memory. Normally we put the words up on the screen, but... Say it in whatever version you learned. I, I, mine's going to be in King James because I learned this first when I was very young, a long time ago. Far, far away in a different millennium even. <laughs> I don't care what you do, but maybe we can at least hit the salient points together. See if we can say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Very good job. However, I think you can do better. You were just sort of quiet. Second service people are always a little tired. It's like they're dragging in from a Saturday night, you know. I, I think we ought to stand up. We ought to say it. This time I'll give you the words. We'll do verse 16 and 17. But let's do it with some enthusiasm, some passion. Let's have a bit of drama. Let's pretend like we're getting ready to shoot a cut of this that we want to use as a promotional video someplace. All right? Are you set? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And all God's people said, Amen. oh, good job. Give yourself a hand as you sit back down. Well, I realize it's the most quoted text, but it works. And I like the setting of this text. It's in the third chapter of John, as you know. But I like what happens in the second chapter of John. John's gospel is different than the others. That doesn't mean his is wrong. It's just the other three are very similar and they cover lots of the same things. He gives us this wonderful chapter where Jesus, first of all, does a feast in Cana of Galilee at a wedding. Some people are not too excited about that, that uh, particular miracle, wishing that Jesus had brought something other to the feast than a keg, okay? And, uh, but that's where he changed the water into wine. 
However, I think there's a little bit more going on in that story than what we normally think. Because if you check that second chapter, you find out that he went to the place in storage where there were six stone jars there for the Jewish ritual purification. And he filled them not with water, but he filled them with new wine. And new wine comes up in the biblical account. It's an exciting way of talking about the things that are changing in God's revelation of himself to mankind. You don't put new wine into old wineskins, for example, because it's explosive, it's moving, it's growing, it's vibrant. It, it, it's, it's new things are happening. Then you go to what happens next. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. Now, again, the other gospels have him late in his ministry cleansing the temple. John has him early in his ministry. Some people say, well, somebody's right, somebody's wrong. But I'm more of the opinion he cleansed the temple twice because I think it needed to be cleansed twice over a three-year period. We don't know exactly what was going on. This is the place where he's talking about, don't make my father's house a den of merchants and all that business and later on he'll talk even more serious ways about making it a den of robbers whatever they were doing they were doing something that conflicted or compounded the ability of people to worship as they should you know this is a family sunday i'm glad it's family sunday i know we're going to be sharing around the lord's table later on today imagine if you came in today and you found out oh by the way we've decided to make communion uh, a fundraising opportunity. If you're uh, an old member, been here a long time, it's $25 for your cup of communion. If you've been here less than five years, 45. If you're new, 175. It'd be a way to raise money, but it's not a good way to bring people together in the house of the Lord. I don't know what was going on, but I think Jesus saw something like that happening in the temple and he cleansed it. And the Pharisees got all a Twitter because of his activities and the things that he did. And they approached him and they said, who do you think you are? And he said, a cryptic thing. I'll tear this building down and I'll raise it up in three days. Which was even more confusing. So Nicodemus, who happens to be a teacher of the law, makes an appointment to see Jesus that night and come and talk with him or at night. I call this Nick at Night. I think, I think it would make a good TV show or maybe a radio program that happened on a regular basis. Hello, this is Nick at Night. Now, some people think, well, they were just busy and they didn't have time to get together during the day. I think Jesus was a little more volatile. I mean, he was a volatile topic. And Nicodemus came to him at night, I think, and I'm not going to fight about this, but because I think he wanted to find out what was going on, but he just wasn't sure. He refers to him as rabbi, but he does it in a little bit of a condescending way. We know you're a rabbi because you do miracles. It's not because you went to school and you have a pedigree and you've gone the normal route. You're some kind of a self-taught rabbi. And it gets even more complicated when Jesus looks at him and starts talking about, you must be born again. And there's all kinds of things that are happening in that conversation, which, well, it's like pulling the props from underneath Nicodemus. Until he gets to the 16th verse of the third chapter. And then he says, for God so loved the world. I'm sure Jesus spoke in the King James. 
For God so loved the world. Well, that's at least something that Nicodemus understands. He's a good Pharisee. He knows and understands that the world was created by the love of God. Pharisees were big on the love of God. They understood his creation brought everything. His love brought everything together in in, in fruit in creation. He created us in his image and like us. He equipped us to not only be with him, but to also bring children into the world in his image and likeness. And when you, <coughs> excuse me, when you look at the love of God and you start going through the Old Testament and you see the way God works and the way he sets up his plan, he nurtures, he teaches, he feeds, he guides, he sustains, he leads. And he protects. Jesus, of course, is giving us his testimony about love in John 3.16. Moses, at different times, gave his testimony about love. And particularly on this idea of protection. There's a passage in the seventh chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Where Moses is starting out by saying, by the way, when you go into the promised land... You need to exterminate all the peoples who live there. The Hivites, the Hittites, the Ammonites, you know, all all those names. And then he gets on to the more salient points in the middle. And oh, by the way, do it in love because you're a people of the Holy Lord. The Lord our God has chosen you. You're his treasure possession. It's not because you were more in number than others. He chose you to love you, to equip you, to empower you. Why in the world, and many people have asked me this over the year, and I bet you have run into people who said, how can God be a loving God? And then ask his people to exterminate whole groups of people. I think it's because God had a plan. He's equipping people. It's not just because he wants to bless a certain group of people. It's because he wants to bless everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's putting these people together so he can make that happen. And there's no way he's going to allow an adversarial group to destroy that plan, to get it off track. To make it so it doesn't happen. He's not going to allow them to do that. So in a protective way. Much as a parent protects their child. When they're in danger. Or a a mother bear protects her cubs. When his people are in danger. He shows his love by protecting them. And that is something that Nicodemus would understand. But it's it's that next part. And I've already told you what it was. And you've already quoted with me. You, You know what it is. That next part. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now that's a revolutionary concept. That's something very new. Now I know you've heard sermons about it because I've heard sermons about it here. I've heard several of them in the last few months. Love is the most talked about topic that preachers preach on. Our verse is the most quoted verse ever. We know and understand. Matter of fact, you could even say, if you're going to try and describe the Bible as a book, it's a love story. God loving the world so much, he sacrifices his son to save and keep and sustain the world. If you want to put all that from one long sentence and just to a little short nugget that people can remember, then God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Revolutionary concept. 
Jesus' testimony to Nicodemus. I like it when it comes down to the very end of that whole discussion. He says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What that means is if you love God, you will love like God. Now, John wrote that gospel. He was quoting his master, Jesus. Late in his life, he wrote a a, a letter. First John. He talks about love in there so much. It's John's testimony about what love is. Love one another, third chapter, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. If you see someone in need and you don't help them, how can you shut up your heart against that person? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given up. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and whoever loves has been born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his life is perfected of us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. (laughs) That's pretty heavy. It's a much wordier way of saying this existence we live, it, it all comes down to love. God loving us, we loving God, and loving like God because of that. It all comes down to love. No wonder church people often talk about the fact that love is important. Every church I've ever been involved with as an adult has always told me how much they love people. They're known as a loving church. I remember when I took my very first church, March 1973. An old lady in the choir took me inside and said, you're going to love being at this church. This is such a loving church. We really love everybody here. We have a close fellowship. We really love everybody here. We love our community. If you want to learn about love, look at this church. I was reminded of what she said to me and some other things she said to me on other occasions a few weeks ago when I was out floating in the foyer. I'm an usher. But I'm a floating usher. You've probably never seen me if you always come to second service because I float first service. By floating means a lot of people sign up for one or two Sundays a month and they get specific doors, et cetera, et cetera. I usually am here every week and I float. If there's a vacant door, I'll do it. I mean, I can greet you at any one of these doors in this room. But by floating, I'm also free. Sometimes things need to happen. I need to take somebody to, from point A to point B or I have to go get something. Or, but more often than not, I'm just floating and I'm talking to people who come in. And, and when you're there every week and people come every week, you can almost say what time people are going to start arriving. 
And uh, first service this time, there were still a few people who I was expecting to come in. Okay, they come late. You see them, you notice when there's something different, when they're bringing someone. Often they'd say, oh, I've got my friend from, uh, from some other country or from some other state. Or we have relatives here today. Sometimes I see these people so much on a week-to-week basis. What we talk about is an update on prayer requests and their needs. What's happening? It's a kind of an intimate way to communicate with people. I like it. I I recently ran into a a young couple that had been wanting to bring a relative with them to church for some time. Matter of fact, they had been planning it. They didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. But it finally happened and they they got their relative to church for the first time. I, I took a picture of it. Oh, that's appropriate. Oh, Joe and Savannah brought their daughter, Whitney, to church for the first time. She's just a few days old. Basically her first outing. How wonderful for your first outing to be with your parents to this place. To be surrounded by people who love you, know you, pray for you. Uh, it, it, it was wonderful to see them. I, I had to take their picture. I, I prayed with them that day, just asking for God's blessing to be with them, to sustain them, not now and forevermore, but forevermore. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I hope she can be like me and grow up saying, I don't remember when I first heard John 3.16 because it's carved in my biblical DNA. I never remember a time I didn't know that verse of scripture. So anyway, I said, are you going to sit in the wheelchair room? They said, no, we're, we're going to go on the big service. I said, okay. As they left, I thought, good luck. <laughs> Rookies. Well, they were in here for a while. I think they stayed a good three to four minutes before Whitney changed her mind. And they came barreling out. It was, it was comical. They said, we think we better go to the wiggle room. I said, that's okay. But I told them a story before they went. You know, I told you about that first church I went to in March of 1973. I remember a time when a family like that came in with a brand new baby. That baby's name was Angel. Now, Angel lasted in adult service for a long time. It was our only option because we didn't have a nursery. But she was in there and she was doing really, really great. But about 10 minutes into the sermon, she allowed out a cry like a banshee attacking the castle gates. Everybody turned to look at that mother and that child as the mother dropped to the floor. The minister was silent. And then he said this. Did you hear that? Now everybody looked at the minister and she dug a hole through the floor, mother did. And here's what he said. That's the most beautiful sound I've ever heard in this church room. He said, do you know it's been years and years and years since we've had a baby to cry in this auditorium. We have no children. What a blessing And know that Angel can come and cry in here anytime she wants because this is a wonderful thing that you're here. 
I have never forgotten that. That's why when I see uh, young couples like Joe and Savannah come in, I don't just pray for them there. I, I start praying for them. When I think about it, I have the picture. I remember them. You don't have to pray for them. You can look around the room. You can look at people. You can pick out people. People you don't even know. People you maybe recognize, but you pray for. Because it's all about them coming into the fellowship of love and being glad that they are here. It's, it's a wonderful situation for that to happen. Uh, I, this week I was, this past week I was getting ready for this message and I was in the well and I went to the commons and as I was going back and forth a time or two, I ran into Beth Huckabone who was trying to get in some hot dishes and some stuff and I took it and took it into the commons for it. I walked in there and there was a whole room full of women sitting at table, but more importantly, there was this most wonderful row of hot dishes of food. I put my food on the table. It was marvelous. It was the mops group, the community mops group, mothers of preschools. I should have taken a picture of all that food. It was wonderful food. I went home and told my wife, I said, maybe we ought to think about having another child because <laughs> then we could, we could legitimately crash into this program. I mean, they don't take men, but maybe, maybe they'd like a mentor grandfather. It, it was great. I also thought about my old preacher that I served with so many years back. He would not be able to comprehend a church that was overrun from people from the community that came in with their small children. He would say that was the most wonderful thing that could possibly happen to a church. That we would be known in a community as a safe place for people to come with a group of people who would gather around them, love them, mentor them, guide them, help them, and encourage them. You see, that church hired me <coughs> because they had no children. I mean, birth through sixth grade, these are way too many fingers to number the kids that they had. And as I said before, they had no babies. They said, we want you to bring children and families into this church. That, that is why we're hiring you. Now, the interesting thing I didn't realize it at the time, but if you talk to anybody in that church, or, or almost anybody at that church, they would say part of a reason we can't grow is because we're on the wrong side of tracks. And people in the rest of town looked down on us. And I don't know that I really believed that at first, but the longer I was there, I think I can understand why they said that. And there was a rough and tumble attitude to that part of town. It, it was a kind of a tough part of town. But nevertheless, I did everything that I could to start reaching out to my community. Now, the church ended right here, and right behind it was the parking lot, and right behind that was a little shack, kind of a house, where they stuck me. It was not much of a place to live, but it made me a part of the immediate community. And before long, I, I kind of struck up a relationship with a, a little boy. Now, I didn't meet him right then. Here's how I met him. I was in my house one day when all at once there arose such a clatter. I jumped to my feet to see what was the matter. And there were a bunch of other little boys. They came down yelling and screaming, asking for help. Because 
somebody had had a tragic accident. Now, I lived at, right next to a road, and on the other side of the road was Lover's Leap. On one side of Lover's Leap, it was a sheer drop, hundreds of feet. I don't know if it's 20, 30 stories. It was a long way down to your certain death. But on the side where I lived, it was sort of excavated in big stair steps, about 20 feet high stair steps. And this group of boys had chased this other little boy up onto one of those steps and pushed him off. He lay on the floor, uh, the, the ground, unable to speak and unable to move. Now, of course, this was long before cell phones. And so I get everybody organized and we're t- telling them where to run and call and get an ambulance and this and that and the other. And it took a long time to rouse the troops. But we finally got some people there. Scott him sent off. I got in my car. I went to the hospital. I sat with him. And it was the longest time for any family member ever showed up or anything like that. I was with him for hours. That's how I got to know him. And coming back after... Some family got there. And after he was beginning to regain use of his limbs and his voice, I thought to myself, what kind of awful boys would chase somebody up on a cliff like that and push them off? Then I got to know the kid. I thought he probably deserved it. If my grandmother, Shepherd, would to describe him, she would say, he growed up like he ain't got no folks. Meaning, if wolves had raised him, he would probably have more social graces, more manners, have a better understanding of what he needed to do. But he grew up unattended and didn't really know. And there seemed to be nobody who was providing him with any kind of a leash or guidance or whatever. I was there full time in the summers and only there on weekends and during the school year because I was still in college. I desperately wanted to get him into the church life so there were people that could come alongside him and mentor him and I tried my best to get him in church and nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. One Sunday I was leading worship at the first part of the service. And it's a fan-shaped room like this, only not nearly so big. And I'm standing here and I'm leading worship, whatever. The back door led right to the parking lot. So if you came in late, most people came through that door. If you came in late, you came in in front of God and everybody. And he came in about 10 minutes late, slammed the door. Everybody looked. He goes in and flops right down in front of where you guys are sitting. And I think he put one leg up like that. He was barefoot, long pants, no shirt, dirty as all get out. And his hair looked like it had molasses in it. I mean, it was, he was a mess. Now, normally I would have gone over and sat by him, but I couldn't because I was doing leading worship. But I noticed when the choir, that choir lady who talked about the loving church, she went down and sat next to him and I was relieved. And as soon as I got everything else done, I was prepared to go over there and sit by him as well. But he wasn't there, nor was the choir lady. I didn't know what happened until everything was over and I was passing through in the room where the choir people were taking off their robes and I heard that lady say in a pretty smug way, I sent him home. I told him he wasn't fit to be in church and not to come back until he took a bath, 
put on shoes and socks and some clean clothes and combed his hair. Apparently he never did that because he never came back again. Matter of fact, I never saw him again. I couldn't track him down. He wouldn't let me find him. He wouldn't talk with me. And I lost track of him. I've never quite gotten over that. It sort of reminds me too of the commentary or testimony that the Apostle Paul gave about love. I wish that woman was here today so I could remind her that love is patient, kind. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures everything. Love never ends. If this doesn't describe your love, then all your talk about a loving church and what you do and yada is just blah, 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 blah. A noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Oh, we should be praying for kids like this who have no one to look after them. If the he ain't got no folks, we can be their folks to love and nurture them. Years later, I'm in a different state. This time I'm working at a Christian college. I occasionally have opportunities to do consulting work. And I was in doing consulting work for a church, a church kind of in desperate needs. They told me right up front, they were a very loving congregation. They were known for their love and, and they had this great loving fellowship, and, but they just couldn't seem to grow. They didn't understand why they weren't growing. They're trying to do things to read out to, out to the community and they wanted me to come in. And so I spent a few days with them, <coughs> met with leaders, <coughs> different people in the church, doing things, toured the building, looked at things, did some research, yada, yada, yada. But as I came from the airport to the church and back to the hotel and then from the hotel back to the church and back to the hotel and being thrown around and I'm going back and forth, I noticed that all of the signs in an eight block circumference around the church were in Spanish. So one day I said, I noticed that there's a lot of Spanish signs in the community. How many Spanish families do you have in the church? We don't have any. I said, do, do they never come? Oh, yeah, <laughs> they come all the time. But we send them right down the road about five miles because we think they'll be happier there. I thought to myself, I bet you're right. I bet they will be happier there. I haven't quite got over that comment either. How could you be praying for God to send people into your path? Into your sphere of influence, people that you can witness to and talk to and share the gospel message, illustrate for them how the love of God has saved you and blessed your life, and now you can be a blessing to them. How can you do that? And then when He answers your prayer right in your very neighborhood, you send Him five miles down the road. Blah, 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 blah. 
noisy gong, clanging cymbal. After that old lady sent my friends away, and generally, if you're an old lady, I love old ladies. I'm, I'm married to one, actually. <laughs> but I made some changes in my approach in that church. I put together a very small group team of people, team of people who hadn't been at that church very long or were very, very fringe-oriented, some adults who, who kind of were Christmas and Easter adults, if you know what I mean. And we made a covenant together to reach out to our community. There were several streets in our section of town, the other side of the tracks. And we decided we were going to contact every house. We weren't going to do it every year. We weren't going to do it twice a year. We weren't going to do it every quarter. We weren't going to do it once a month. We were going to contact every house in the neighborhood every week. And that's what we did. We made hundreds of calls every week. Now they were short calls. We stopped. We just said, we were here. We love you. We want you to come. If you have children, we have special things we're doing. We did that every week for two years. It got to be a pain in maybe the place you would think I'm going to say, but I'm not because it's family Sunday. But it got to be a pain. But within a little over a year, our junior church went from 13 with workers to over 125 on a regular Sunday. The adults only ran 180. It was amazing the difference would make when people who talked love showed love to our community. I was only there for two years and I went to another church. I I, I hated to leave that church, but but I needed to. I was getting married and, you know, life changes, etc. And then I had the most interesting experience at the new church. There was a family there who had basically adopted my approach. And they had picked out a family at risk in the community. A family with several children. And they decided they were going to make their mission of life to surround that family. And they contacted them that week. They tried to bring all of those kids to church every single Sunday. They stopped by. That's when you could put a lot of kids in a big old car. They stopped by every week. They got what they could. Sometimes they got all of them there. Sometimes they got part of them there. It, it really kind of boiled down to they were most successful with two girls. And I come in 40 years after they had done that. It was pretty amazing because those two girls that they rescued were grown women, strong Christian women, married to strong Christian men who are raising strong Christian families. One of those girls went into a ministry that took care of old people that needed nursing care. She devoted her life to it. She devoted her life to loving people. The, the, The motto of that ministry was... Forsake me not when my strength faileth. And, and she was there to provide strength. It was a beautiful thing. The other lady who, who had also been co-opted by somebody else in the church, a single woman. She was the founding librarian for my college and seminary. Never had any children. Very quiet. 
But she saw something in that other sister and she took her under her wing. And she said, just as Paul took care of Timothy, I'm taking care of this woman. She's my Timothy. And you can't imagine the difference in that woman's life because that old woman poured her life into that young woman. I've worked with lots of, lots of church workers. I never had anybody who could leap mountains <laughs> and, uh, and, and go faster than a speeding bullet in the Christian service than that woman did. You're going, well, Christian service, that's next week. Well, glory bleeds into love. Love bleeds into Christian service. They're almost secular as we think about those three things. God's glory is invested in us when we do what he said to love other people. And that, that woman loved the church. She was a youth sponsor. She ran Sunday school. She was one of the people who ran vacation Bible school. She handled the finances for our teen mission trip in the summertime. I mean, I could just go off and list all kinds of things she did. She even went so far as to later on, as my roles changed... She had a complete record on everybody in the church, and it was a big church, trying to meet every single one and match them to a place where they could be a Christian servant. That was so enlightening to me, because if you're somewhere and you're working with, say, little kids, you don't know if your sacrifice is making any difference. You can't say, you need lots of years to be able to tell. And I got to come in And see what one family's vision had done in 40 years. And it made all the difference in the world of being able to understand. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our job is to be and show forth the love of God to everyone we meet in our community or wherever. Man, to pray that God will put us in places where we can work with adults or children or whomever and do just the right kind of loving to bring them to the place where they can bloom and be a part of what God has created them to be in the spreading of that love story that he wants all people to know. Now, you could be sitting here and thinking to yourself, well... If he's preaching about love, he's not talked about any of the Greek words. Okay. I'll tell you a story with Greek words. There are more than one Greek words about love. Some of them were used the way the Greeks used them. Some of them we co-opted. We usually think of agape love. That's one of the story words about Greek word. It, it's a... It's about the deep best interest. I don't know you, but I love you. And I want the deep best things that can possibly happen to you. And I will do what I can regardless of the fact I don't even know you. To surround you with love. Phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's about familial love. Of course you're going to love your brother, your sister, your parents, your aunt, your uncle. Or people who are, who are just like your family. Eros is another kind of word. Uh, Since it's Family Sunday, I'll describe that as marital love, okay? We wouldn't be here without a little Eros, and so, you know, it's, it's part of the story. I knew a guy who was from, I think, the wrong side of the tracks. He was a little rough, a little rowdy. And he had a guy eye on this girl, and he wanted to date her. And she loved him from the moment she met him. 
How do I know? She said to him, I only date boys who go to church. He said, what? She says, I only date boys that go to church. And the point is, it wasn't about, are we going to go out someplace or to a movie? The whole point in the relationship is the most important thing that I can do for you is make sure that you know about Jesus Christ. I love you. I care about you. I want you to know that. And I don't know how we can even begin to have a conversation or relationship if that's not going to be our starting place. He thought, I don't need that. But after about two weeks of thinking about it, he showed up and sat on the back row. And he came, I think, most weeks. And after two or three weeks, he was about three rows down further. She was paying attention and... Because he was at church, they would talk afterward. And, you know, their relationship changed to that friendly kind of love. That community kind of love. Someone I know, someone I can talk to. And they became friends. As it progressed, he found himself on the front row. And much to his surprise, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. It wasn't about the girl. It was about the Savior. It was about the plan of God. Well, you might not be surprised for me to say they did eventually get married. They were married for over 50 years. They raised two beautiful Christian daughters who married Christian men and established Christian families. And oh, by the way, he became the head of the Bible department at the college I went to. He was my gospels professor, everybody's favorite professor. He would have liked us talking about John this morning, but he would have thought we should have spent a little more time on that second chapter. He also taught Johannian lit, wanted to make sure we let the gospel uh, apostle John have something to say. I remember him teaching about all of that. It's interesting, the woman he ended up marrying not only brought him to Christ, But she loved him so much in the right kinds of ways that he developed his full potential. And his love not only extended to her and their children and their grandchildren, but extended to thousands of Christian students who came to him to learn. That's what I call love. That's what we're about. We can talk about love all day. But until we... Until we allow God's love to transform us that we love God back and we love everyone else. People in the church and people in our community. It's just blah, 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 noisy gong and clanging cymbals. It all comes down to love. Love God. Love each other. Love the world in whatever place he gives us to do it. And I hope all God's people will say, thank you.